0: Thank
1: you for downloading this podcast from Pardes North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Mike Foyer and Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfield on Parashat Korach. For the latest Pardes podcasts, please visit elmad.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Mike Foyer and Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfield. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. This is Mike Foyer. And to my great joy, I'm sitting here with my colleague, Svi Hirschfeld. Svi, how are you doing? I am, thank God, well and excited to be learning a little Torah with you. That's right. It's Parsha Korach. Korach that we're here to discuss. And, you know, before I hit record there, you were speaking about a very interesting topic. Why don't you tell me the question that's on your
0: mind? Uh, the question that was on my mind, in particular for you, because I actually see you as a bit of a rebel in certain <laughs> ways, certain interesting ways. You don't dress the part of a rebel. Well, I'm but, not wearing a uh, white shirt today, so it, it may for be a little rebellious That's true. people are used to, to by Mike Foyer, he is not in his normal uniform today, which is actually interesting and exciting. Maybe it's in the spirit of the Parsha. But this, the question of authority— And Mm -hmm. when is it okay to challenge authority and when is not okay to challenge authority uh, is interesting to me. And especially in context, because the fact that this Parsha comes after Parsha Schlach, where the spies go out and come back, and we know the disaster that that occurs, and now the people are going to die in the desert. (laughs) And so, you know, if we judge leadership by the results— Are we surprised that Moshe's leadership is being questioned in a context where, right, the claim that you failed, I I guess I'm shocked at myself for saying this, Moshe Rabbeinu should forgive me, but there's a certain legitimacy to that claim because the project
1: didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve. Oh, there's so many layers to that. First of all, I just want to be clear that there is a distinction to be made between the legitimacy of Challenging leadership, right, as an act unto itself, and a, which may be an important part of the system, and whether it succeeds or fails. Meaning it may be legitimate to challenge, even if you're wrong, or it may only be legitimate to challenge if indeed your claim is correct. That's one piece. But before we get there, let's get a little bit of context for folks who aren't entirely sort of detail-oriented on the Parsha. Here we are at the beginning of Parsha Korach. And the Torah points out to us, Right? it says he took. And it's interesting, of course, that it never articulates what he took. Rashi brings down a number of ideas that essentially he pulled himself to the side. He stood aside from this structure. And I say structure deliberately because up until now, structure has been the emphasis of the book of the We've got the camp in the desert. We have the hierarchical relationship between the kohanim and the levites and the rest of israel we have as you said this leadership structure which is the immediate trigger because remember moshe is essentially king his brother Aaron is high priest and according to the sages what's triggered our rebellion here is the fact that moshe chose someone other than korach from the family to be the prince of his family within in the levites right so this is a classic power struggle the accusation is nepotism. Right? He says, hey, listen, you and your brother are in charge. I want my piece of the pie. And he goes around and and does some rabble rousing and, and incites 250 princes also from the tribe of Reuven. And basically, what's Korach's primary accusation? He says, here I'm here and looking in uh, in chapter 16, line 3, it's, Everyone gathered against Moshe and Aaron. They said to them, It's enough theory. Ki kol Right? All all the whole community is holy. Right? And why are you lifting yourselves up above the people? So, the first question, were Moshe and Aaron lifting themselves above the people? And, together with that, is what Korach said true? What do you think, Svi? Is the whole community indeed holy? Well,
0: it's interesting, because by your question, there are like two questions two things emerge. Number one is Korach saying this whole thing that God appointed you, you invented. Right. Right. In other words, you just told a story, but it's not the true story because in fact, we're all holy. Why would God pick you above everybody else? That's not a very godly thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, God wants us all to be holy. So why use? There might be an, uh, an accusation that Moshe and Aaron have tricked everybody. And I also can't help but bring in, even though I know this may not be the direction that you're thinking, the fact that you've got a camp that is built to move, and they are now not moving anywhere, (laughs) right? You built this beautiful car, and the car was designed to drive, and now you're being told it's going to stay in the garage for 40 years. I can't help but think part of his question is, what gives you the right to raise yourselves up
1: above everybody else if, in fact— this system is not working. Right, meaning Moshe was appointed to bring the Torah down and lead Am Yisrael into Israel. As soon as the people don't go into Israel, you can blame Moshe or not, but that's a failure of leadership. Right. Right, and, and so Koach is saying, maybe we could have taken a utilitarian stance and said, so long as you brought us into Israel, you were a legitimate leader. As soon as that's no longer the case, let's go back to basics. We were all at Sinai. Right? That's how Rashi explains. What does he mean? Right, We're all holy? We all heard God at Sinai. And how do we know that it was really God that elevated you? And it's not simply, like, notice the, the reflexive of that verb, right? Tit nasu, right? You're lifting yourselves up. Right? It wasn't God that did so for you. Now, it's interesting to me, what came up for me when you were saying that is, um, you know, back at the end of, I don't think it was the end, in the middle of Baalotcha, a couple of parts a to ago, we got what I see to be one of the most beautiful expressions of Moshe's leadership. You remember, right, Moshe says to God, I can't do this alone. Leadership is, the, is, in fact, you could say that leadership is the theme of, Bar- of the book of Mimipar. Yeah. Right? He says, I can't do this alone. God says, what? Okay, I'll give you 70 elders. And there's a whole story there. Hopefully folks have read it. Um, in the end, there's two people who don't show up for the spirit that gets poured out upon these leaders. Eldad and Medad. Right? They, they prophecy in the camp. And, and Yehoshua says, oh, we should throw them in prison. What's Moshe say? Yeah, He's thrilled with it. He says, well, say specifically. What does he say? So like, would that all the children of Israel be prophets. That's yeah, so, sort of the right. So we see a beautiful insight. So Moshe has no personal interest in being above the people. He says Yahushua. Oh, well, you want to throw them in jail? What would be more legitimate? Right? Say the sages that that they were predicting the end of Moshe's leadership, right? Oh, Moshe's gonna die in the desert and Yoshua will lead the people. Listen, that that undermines everything. So who, what leader wouldn't say for the good of the people, we need to get rid of this challenge? Moshe says the opposite. you kidding? I want everyone to be. And wait one second. And now Korach is nominally saying the same thing, right? Right, but now Moshe doesn't like it. Well, because what's Korach doing? He's saying that same thing in order to lift himself up.
0: So you're thinking that if Korach's motivation was different, Moshe wouldn't have had the same reaction.
1: I think so. You know, I once heard from uh, someone who was a refusenik for many years, a mother of a friend of mine that when she reads Parshat Korach, she's quite familiar with it because having grown up in the Soviet Union, she says, oh, I know this story. These are the people who speak about the people in order to empower themselves. And this is what Korach's doing. Right? He's, he's rabble-rousing in order to elevate himself. And nonetheless, is his essential claim true? Right? In fact, I'll go so far as to say all of his essential claims are true. Right? We saw back in Vayikra, God said, Kedoshim to you, Be holy. Now, Korach here is just saying, "Well, how's that any different?"
0: But it really does raise the question of, "Well, you're saying Korach's endgame is not equality, but rather it should be him and not Aaron, or him and not Moshe." Yes, and uh, and you're and you're also suggesting that if he had really been asking for everyone, then maybe there'd be a different result.
1: Yeah, and you know what my proof to the second one is? Is that you, there's a sort of a backstory, or let's say a, a subtext is probably a better term, that Rashi brings out here in that, what's Korach doing challenging Moshe? I mean, you've got to imagine, it's a, it's a risky move. At this point, he did bring the Torah down from Sinai, split the Red Sea, ten plagues, you know? Like, what would, why would you do such a thing? So it says in the language of the sages, Korach, he was an open-eyed guy, he knew what was going on. Why did he get involved in this nonsense? Is because he actually, he was far more open-eyed than anyone knows. He saw this great chain of descendants coming out from him, culminating in whom? Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, who is a direct descendant of Korach. Rashi brings the citation there in Chronicles. Right? And of course, we know that Samuel isn't just any old prophet. He's the one who brings kingship to Israel.
0: Reluctantly so.
1: Reluctantly so, but but it's it's a rather big job, you will admit. But the thing is, is that we often miss in our focus that 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 uh, Shmuel shepherds kingship into our generations. That he's also the one that dismantles the power of the priesthood. If you go back to the very first chapters of the Book of Shmuel, Eli the priest is in charge, and what's happening? What's the institution of the priesthood become? It's corrupt, right? Right. And Shmuel points out that so long as they lift themselves above the people, right, taking their portions before they serve, that that institution has failed. Korach sees in the end of the day that the elitist model is ultimately not going to work for Am Yisrael, right? And so therefore in the same ways he's correct in saying that all of Am Yisrael is holy. Who would disagree with that? Right? And he's correct in saying it doesn't work well when one portion of the arm lifts itself up above the other. In the end of the day, though, he was wrong in his timing and in his motivations.
0: Well, I don't know. I I would push back a little bit. I don't think at the end of the day, like you said, he ushers in kingship. He doesn't usher in constitutional democracy. In other words, there is never a point where elitism ends. You know, even in the rabbinic world, we have an elitism but of a different model. It's a scholarly elitism. But The fundamental idea that, in fact, we are are not all created equal in the sense of our talents, abilities, and what we can contribute, there is a pushback there. Yes, we are all holy, but we are not all equally talented, intelligent, gifted, strong, and so on. And therefore, there is going to be inequality. There are going to be leaders, and there are going to be followers.
1: Well, let's go there because this is obviously a very pressing question in the world today, right? And and, and the classic notion—I realize I'm now probably—I'm going to get canceled for what I just said. That's okay. I'll join you in it. Okay. Um, because you know the the especially in the rabbinic model, then we see what's called a meritocracy. Right. The, the idea that the goal of equality is to create an equality of opportunity. At least and it used to be. Yeah. That, that, that's that I'm talking about in theory. Yeah. Right. If you can create an equality of opportunity, then the best functioning system is to allow talent and difference to to bring the best leaders to the to rise to the top, to rise to the top. Right. Again, that's the ideal, you know, and what Korach's pushing against is on the other side of the scale, which is a a structured hierarchy. You're born a priest. Right. And and, and he's pushing against this notion that, that 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 being born into. An elite position is going to produce anything other than corruption, right? which is exactly what the prophet Samuel dismantles. Now, it's true. He doesn't usher in a, you know, a, 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 forget a constitutional monarchy. It's not an anarchistic, you know, uh, yeah, agrarian collective, to, to borrow a quote, right? It, it's a structure with leadership, because you're correct. In the end of the day, the ultimate goal of Amisrael is not to have everyone be the same, the ultimate goal of Amisrael is to succeed in its mission. And leadership is a requisite for success in a mission. And so the kingship comes, but notice it's a kingship tempered by the institution of prophecy. It's a kingship which is ultimately meant to shepherd in the meritocracy of Torah scholarship. And it's a kingship whose real purpose, at least in its messianic vision, is everyone under their vine and their fig tree, which is, I would say, an anarchist vision of life where there is no intermediary between me and God.
0: But at the same time, it's interesting what you're saying. In other words, maybe there needs to be multiple levels. Now, the fact that the Kohain is born into the Kahuna, and into the priesthood, I always thought that was incredibly relevant. In the same way that that subsequent generations of Jews are born into the Jewish people. In other words fundamentally our mission is not determined through a meritocracy. We don't comb the world looking for the best and the brightest, but rather uh, the vision is if you're born into this mission, then you're, you are covenantally bound to this mission and you're going to continue forward. And I think that the fact that the Kohanim, the priests, are born into theirs is a reminder of the power of being born into. At the same time, your point that if all we have is born into, then there's going to be a problem. Because there will not be room for the best and the brightest to rise up to positions of leadership. And so maybe maybe the whole thing we're trying to create is a multi-tiered system where you have priests and rabbis and prophets and kings and all these different types of leadership, some that you are born into and some that you earn to sort of create this healthy balance between them.
1: Right. And the sages put that in the terms of the three crowns, which really are available to humanity. There's the crown of the priesthood, which, like you pointed out, is is a born role. Although even there, as you said, there's a benefit in not having a choice. Not only because it's an instant pool of uh, candidates, but because it means the priesthood has to contend with the fact that not everybody's the same, and yet we all have the same mission. And there's deep wisdom that comes of how you marshal your forces when you don't get the meritocracy to weed out those who might not fit. Then there's that crown of kingship, which is, on one hand, the most elite, because, you know... There's only one. Yeah, there's only one. Uh, On the other hand, um, at least according to many of the sages, there's a potential for kingship, which is a little bit more expansive than just the House of David. Now, for instance, there are many major religious authorities who will look at our government today, now it's being speaking our in the sense of the State of Israel, and say that it has the role of malchut, has the role of kingship, because what it does is it wields power on behalf of the people. And then, ultimately, the real... Meritocracy is the crown of Torah, which is the fact that if a person wants to crown themselves in life, they have the ability to go out, say, Ulameid, said the sage, right? Go out and learn. And yes, with those all together, and I'm going to go back, we can succeed in our mission. And it's not for naught, of course, that right before we got the Torah at Sinai, what does God call us? Mamlechikoanim, the v'goi Kadosh, right? A kingdom of priests. Well, right? well, yeah, I want to hold on that translation, a holy nation. Kohen, if you weren't fed that line of translating it. As priests, right, all the time. Well, right. Well, how would you translate it as a verb? What's le kahen? Like The serve, I guess. Ah. A nation of servants. This is beautiful. In English, the term minister well, that captures is, this notion. That's true. Right? And we see this, Rashi points it out, that the word really means to minister. Right? And it's indeed, I think, the place where Koch's rebellion was flawed. He was trying to gain power for himself, and he was trying to do it. By pushing against the priesthood, because he saw the priesthood as an act of elevation, standing above. Whereas Aaron, who is his counterpoint, even though he's struggling with Moshe, Aaron in the background here is really his counterpoint. Right? It's a showdown between Aaron and Korach that leads to the destruction of Korach and his, you know, his, uh, his assembly. Right? Aaron is the ultimate servant. And right, because it,
0: it's really never about him. And that's really what Moshe says. Like, what do you have against our own? He, he's never been in this for himself. That's right. So if I'm going to understand you correctly, you defend Korach, uh, or at least elements of Korach. Datan and Aviram are very problematic. And it's interesting, the text does treat them differently. Mm-hmm. right? Korach and his group uh, get their showdown with pants. Whereas it's the Tanaviram, just a second, you me tomorrow that's right. to meet it's it. like you couldn't ask for more drama. <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone bring their fire pan. And let's just do right? it. Right. It's like bringing your six shooter, and we're gonna we're gonna meet at dawn. Second uh,
1: only to Elijah on Mount Carmel. There you go. Which and was also fire ending.
0: That's right. And the Tanaviram, the you know the earth swallows them up, and it's interesting. They they don't have anything positive to offer. They just say, Moshe, you took us out of a land of milk and honey, the ultimate. Insult, insult, right, to describe Egypt as the promised land and the land of Israel. And and they they just say, you failed. We don't need to listen to you. There's nothing really constructive there. They're just angry, resentful, bitter, and uh, they are swallowed up uh, by their own bitterness. Literally. Right. But with Korach, you're saying there is an element there. There's a healthy element. The motivation is mixed, and it's problematic. But you're identifying something healthy there.
1: Yeah, and we might even say, as you're pointing out, that their demise, the means of their demise, indicate that datan aviram are simply swallowed up. They just go down, literally. There's nothing redeeming about them. Koach and his and his, uh, following essentially become a burnt offering.
0: Right, and I that the fire pans they use are actually put on the altar. Yes, they're not buried. Nope, they become part of our means of service. So I always thought that meant that there was a spark in there of something that
1: we do want to hold on to and maintain. And like I said, undeniably, Korach's descendant is Shmuel, right? He's not just another character in the in the Bible there. We're talking about a keystone in the construct of leadership specifically, which is why, to go back to your original question, I think that leadership without rebellion is a failed institution by definition, right? There must be a way in which it is acceptable and even laudable in society to stand outside of the structure of leadership and say you're missing the mark. There are values you're failing to embody. Right? You're going the wrong way, and yet it has to be ultimately invested in the mission. So that's why the Mishnah characterizes the argument between Korach and Moshe and Aaron as machlokhet she'enah l'shem Shemayim. Right? It's a it's a it's a conflict which isn't for the sake of heaven. Even though the idea that was there,
0: there's something healthy there.
1: Right. Meaning, meaning when we step out of Korach's personal grudge, we can see, like, like I said, who's going to argue with the primary contention that all of Am Israel is holy? I mean, maybe people out there today will, but within the narrative of the Bible at the time of Bamidbar, he's correct. They all heard God at Sinai. you know. And who's going to also argue with the notion that in the end of the day, Leadership needs to be a shared, invested institution, and not just one which is appointed from on high. So, where do you see this playing out today? Wow, that's a good question. You know, I know
0: my associations. So I want to hear yours first.
1: <laughs> first of all, I want to say that um, it may be a cliche, but it's worth repeating nonetheless. That that the world's greatest crisis today is a crisis of leadership. Right, and um, when you what, mean world, you
0: mean Jewish world or world world? I think the
1: world as a whole, frankly, and and it's one of the reasons I think that um, sort of autocratic, you know, uh, top down leadership has has made a surging comeback in people's appeal because you know what does an autocrat offer? Clarity, someone who's willing to step outside of the real complexity and say, I know what I want, even if it's crass self interest. At least it's clear and we can relate to it, and it's stable, and it's stable, and therefore attractive to people. Right um, at the same time, you know w- what comes up for me a little bit here is the fact that um, there's either le leshem shemaim or sheeinal leshem shemaim. Right, there's an argument which is based on a, a, a vision of heaven or one which is not. Now, wh- what does that really mean? Well, to me, it means that that even when we argue. There's ultimately a base which unites us. A shared
0: mission. Yeah. Shared you know, frame.
1: We've spoken about this in other contexts. To me, right. it's this fantastic notion that if you ask the average educated Jew, why was the second temple destroyed? What will they tell you? Well, they'll all say Sinat Chinam" right. basis because that's what the Talmud tells us. Right. So. Oh, but by the way, the, the Talmud tells us a lot more than that. Right. there's a list of like, yeah. like 9, 10, you know, who knows? But actually, it's Rashi, in my humble opinion. Rashi was, was that great victor who taught us all that, that, that causeless hatred. Argumentation, you know, is what brought down the temple. At the same time, everybody recognizes that the backbone of rabbinic culture, that which creates meritocratic leadership, is the ability to argue, machlokit, right? The difference is whether there's a shemaim or there's not. Is there something beyond my personal interest, beyond my sense that you're wrong and I'm right, something which I ultimately recognize we're both participant in? And so now you ask where, where I see it today, is that, that you know, I see... Within the Israeli government today, real efforts being made by certain personalities to to try to say we have a society which is made up of pieces that don't necessarily get along. They don't even necessarily fit. But in the end of the day, if we're going to hold this society together, we need to learn to argue constructively. There are other elements which are interested in their own personal power, and they may cloak that in a vision of um, you know holiness. And, 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 and a godly mission. And yet, to me, the litmus test is are we able to offer a vision which will allow us to live together in this land or not? I'm going to leave names out of it. I'll let oh, in Yavin.
0: That's disappointing. Where do you uh, see it? I, I want to turn today? my critical eye towards rabbinic leadership. Oh, please. Uh, let fly. I, I, yes. Well, uh, a, a huge percentage of traditional rabbinic leadership missed the boat on Zionism. Literally, actually. Yes, (laughs) yes, to tragic Tragic, results and are still missing the boat. Yes, Uh, equally tragic results. uh, And I would even say even in my own community of rabbinic leadership, I think there is not nearly enough room for healthy questioning and challenge. And in fact, challenge or questioning is seen as such a scary, slippery slope. Yes. And change is seen as one uh, rabbinic, uh, not really a friend, he's not a colleague, he's a teacher of mine, said, we have not figured out how to institute change without everybody claiming you're destroying the whole system. Yes. We, d- we have not developed that skill. It's a muscle we don't know how to use. And I think that is leading to a circumstance where I look at my own kids and their friends and where things are. They're not interested in rabbinic leadership. They're interested in Torah. Yes. They're interested in Judaism. Mm -hmm. They love the land of Israel. They love the Jewish people. But they are less and less interested in Keter Torah, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, The leadership that's crowned through Torah precisely because... They don't see, I'm, I'm, I don't remember your exact words, but a leadership that is open to machloket to que- and open to questioning, open to challenge, open to the idea that they may be wrong, and open to the idea of how to incorporate uh, different voices. It is so In fact, critical. all they see is Korach. Or they see the the angry, self motivated Korach, or even worse, the destructive, bitter Datan Aviram, and they don't see the the uh, authentic and genuine and real question of, "Hey, we're all holy. We all have something to say here, and you're not listening." So, part of that's that t- my rant. I just ranted, everyone. Uh, part Sorry. of that,
1: and maybe uh, I think we're probably approaching our time here. So, part of that to me um, relates deeply to this meaning of the word machloket, right? It has its root, its three-letter root is chelek, right? It's a portion, right? And it it serves a positive purpose insofar as it, it's not that I have to be right and and you're wrong. It's that I have to recognize that I am right, but I'm only seeing part of the picture. And that in order for me to see a greater wholeness, I need you to actually argue with me, to show me the point of view which I simply can't see. Now that takes a tremendous amount of trust and humility And that brings me to my real point, which is that, historically speaking, one of the challenges that rabbinic leadership faces today is that here in the state of Israel, at least, it's consciously or not wedded to power. It's wedded to power. It's a Jewish state. We have an institutionalized rabbinut. And even if you're not part of the institutionalized rabbinut, there's many ways in which official religious thought upholds the structures of power. Why do I say this? It's because, you know, in exile... Jewish religious practice was a conservative force, small c. Why? Because we were trying to hold on. And our relationship to power was, you know, secondary at best. You know, it, it tended, by the way, to relate to absolute power well. That's a different discussion in history. But if you look in the Bible, and even in the rabbinic times and Second Temple period, the relationship between the Keter Torah, the, you know, religious leadership, and the leadership of power was a revolutionary one. The prophets stood radically against the kings so often. The rabbis spoke out against the against And so what the problem is, I see, is that rabbinic leadership is concerned to be conservative, small c, in its relationship to power, and yet we're back in the land. We don't know how to take a radical stance as religious Jews and to say to power, you can do better. There are deeper values which you are meant to serve. We have a vision which is redemptive and therefore has to be open to more perspectives than those which simply serve ourselves.
0: Which sort of raises a question, if Moshe turned to Korach and say, great question, when we come into the land 40 years from now, ask me again. Right. Because right now, we're just trying to hold on. That's right. But there is a future where things are going to open up and ask your question again. But maybe what what Korach lacked most of all was patience. He wanted the experience of living in the land as a people within their own borders, constructing their own destiny and yet they were still stuck in the desert.
1: That's right, and that's perhaps why the sages point out that his children, nevertheless, they, they repented. They did tshuva right at the, the lip of destruction, and ultimately their descendants gave us Shmuel, who brought kingship and that ideal of the, the Davidic, you know, messianic leadership, so we should be bezocha, if not in our day, then at least in our children's, because we'll be patient as well, to see a leadership which is able to incorporate difference, okay. which is able to offer a vision in which we are indeed all holy, and yet is also able to exercise power in a way which can lead us to the places we need to go.
0: So, Yashar Koch, I like Korakh more now than when we started. I'm not so, sure if that's success uh, or failure, but well, it's I'm certainly worthwhile.
1: It but Yashar Koch, uh, great learning with you. Thank you. And thank you, too, as well. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of Pardes from Jerusalem.